Five minutes in the gold buggy with Jehu. Where are you, Jehu? <laughs> Fastest golf buggy south of the border. Um, well, Canadian border. Unbelievable. Uh, well, just before we get going, a couple of things. Um, hold in there with me, Katie. Uh, has anyone read a book called The Master and His Emissary by McGilchrist? Anyone read this book yet? Okay, that's all right. It's an amazing book. I'm not going to go into great detail. But he's talking about the way, now, the way our brains operate. And it looks like actually the first way humans began to communicate was not through language but through tone. Right? Now, we can't go into all that detail, but music apparently, right, what we were doing this morning, is really fundamental, it appears, to the first emergence of human communication. And they're realising the importance of singing together, you know, just how critical that is. It's one thing to listen to music, but to actually sing as a group, people are realising is absolutely kind of essential and, and very primitive to human understanding and formation and connection. So actually, Christians are one of the few groups in the world that still gather together and sing. Right? Uh, and I know most of us when we sing, it's like, the Lord is a great saviour. He has redeemed me. And I'm looking forward to eternal life. Hallelujah. <laughs> but you don't make that mistake, which is great, right? Um, there's something about giving yourself to music that's really going to help you over some of your inhibitions. And one of the things the world is looking for are for people who can live a life that's uninhibited in a way that brings life. There are people who live uninhibited lives, but they're lives that bring death. We don't want that. So you might not believe this, but let me tell you, your freedom in worship is going to help you actually talk to people about Jesus in a natural and unselfconscious way. And so wonderful wise words this morning. Get over yourself, all right? <laughs> Seriously. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Get over yourself. <laughs> it's not about that. Let's not fall into that silly trap of thinking that unless I look like the most perfect image I can imagine in a magazine, I have no value. That just destroys so many people's lives, folks. So get over it. Right? Enjoy being a human being with all the foibles and weirdnesses and oddnesses about it. We are an odd bunch and it's a good thing. Right? Look around. Come on, seriously. <laughs> so let's enjoy the weirdness and being a little wobbly and all that kind of stuff and it'll be good. Okay? Um, very pleased with that. So keep up that singing. Just great stuff. Love it. So... Um, Last night, we talked about well, it was called Getting Started. It was a bit of a heavier session in some ways, I know. I'm already standing on myself here. Uh, but we're just laying some intellectual foundations, right, just for why we can trust the Gospels. And uh, what I hope you picked up was that just as an historian, not as a Christian, just as an historian, not a philosopher... Christianity is not about philosophy. It's not an idea. We did not dream this up. This is about something that happened and we're trying to make sense of it. Right? And in trying to make sense of all of that, um, you begin to realise these Gospels are making extraordinary claims and as a historian, you're going to have a really hard time explaining why Jewish people would invent these stories because they really don't fit their categories. So last night I was telling you, no one expected the Messiah to walk on the water. No one expected the Messiah to heal. That's why when Jesus is doing this stuff, people don't say, you're the Messiah. No, he's not. He's a naughty little boy. No, no one's saying that, right? 
They don't know what to do with him. He doesn't fit their boxes. At one point, the people in your invest thought, ghost? No. They really don't get what's going on here. Can you hear? You've got to hear this. You have not come and put your trust in cunningly devised fables. No one is that cunning. No one would invent this kind of story, and certainly not in the first century, where everything's about this. Maximus, strength and honour, strength and honour. Right? Don't you get that, do you? Gladiator, famous Australian actor, <laughs> bit of a larrikin and troublemaker, uh, known to throw the odd punch occasionally. Right? And then over against this, what do you have? Now, you understand graffiti is not a modern invention. In fact, it's one of the great ways to learn about the ancient world. Their cities are covered with graffiti. And you can actually see in the 2nd and 3rd century, they're becoming increasingly irreverent toward their gods right? because they feel their gods are failing them. Now, this is a, a piece of graffiti, and can you kind of make out what's going on here? I won't expect you to read the Greek. I can explain that to you. Uh, but what have you got? There's a figure on the left. He's got a hand raised, and, he, and he's looking up. And what's he looking up at? Looks like a, an ass, an ass's head. But what's the ass on? On a cross. Right? What do you think that's a reference to? That's Jesus. This is graffiti from a part of the Roman world mocking this person, uh, Alexamenos, worships right, his God. So someone scrawled this on the wall. They're not very good at forming their Greek letters, but there it is, right? Worships his God and they're mocking. It's, you've got to get that. No one's going to invent Jesus, folks. Nobody, not in the first century. It's all about the stuff over here on the left. That's what Rome's about. It's all about power, strength and honour. Right? Now, historians, people like to celebrate Rome, but you need to think about the terrible cost in people's blood that underlay that empire. One of the first true slave societies in the ancient world. Many of them lived absolutely miserable lives, treated like junk. As were most of you women, actually. If you're living back in the first century, probably at least, I don't know, a quarter of you would be slaves. And that means that your master could pretty much do with you whatever he wanted. And if you're a nice, pretty girl, he could have you whenever he wanted. If you're a pretty boy, the same thing. That's the first century world, just a part of it. Julius Caesar slaughters nearly a million people when he invades Gaul and no one bats an eyelid. 250,000 homes destroyed. People have no place to live to face the winter. One bomb goes astray in Afghanistan and it's all over the newspapers. That does not come from the Roman world. That comes from this world where every human being has value. Right? Do you realise that? Whenever you see in your papers... There's all this fuss because some people were killed and, you know, remember the Mylace you know, incident? In the Roman world, that was nothing. That happened all the time. Why is it such a provocative thing for us? Because of Jesus. That's what changed this. You got that? So we don't realise it, but many of the things that outrage us today, they only outrage us because of Jesus. You think he's just about saving you from your sins to get you ready to go to heaven? What? That is such a thin vision of Christianity. You can't live on that. Right? 
No, this was much, much richer. And that's what these gospel stories tell us. They, they changed the world, actually. So that's what you're committed to. That's what I'm committed to. If I was there with those guys in the boat, I would have seen him walk on the water. I really would have. And I probably would have had the same response, like, what the? And you can fill in your, you know, what holy scripture, if you like, right? It's whatever it is. You know, that, that's their response. So what I want to talk about, actually, is uh, who was Jesus? So this is the second talk now. And I mentioned last night, you know, some of us have interesting views of who Jesus is. Who saw Mr. Remember Mr. Rogers when you were growing up? No, okay, you all remember him. What a lovely, you hear that? Oh, yeah, all that longing, that wonderful, you know, Mr. Rogers was your friend, you know. Gentle Jesus, Mr. Rogers, born in a manger. Right? And, and if you stop and think about it, well, yeah, he comes across a bit like that, doesn't he? And, you know, I'm not trying to knock anyone, but... Um, you know, the nativity scene, and we, we love that. You know, the Sunday school kid, and you watch the star do interesting little things that makes its way across, and, you know, shepherds that, whose sheep's clothing are dropping, and all that kind of stuff that the kids do, and we all sit there, and we think it's great, and it is. But that's not what Rome thought about it. It was a real th threat to Rome. That's why, in the third century, they tried to eradicate it. There's something extraordinary about Christmas, folks. It's about change in the world. It's profound. And it's not Mr. Rogers that does this. No one really wants to crucify Mr. Rogers, do they? Well, maybe your parents, after the 7,000th watch, like, we've had enough of this guy. Okay. Maybe not, right? Um, maybe some of us think of Jesus or God as a kind of a Gandalf figure. or you know, We've got all these different images in mind that are actually probably not who Jesus really is. So we have this confused amalgam of images how can we talk about Jesus to people if we don't actually know who he is? Right? And I'm not, not having a shot at anyone, you understand. This is really my story, my psychosis, right? I'm now imposing him on you. But I grew up in a world where I loved Jesus and he really mattered and I saw the Holy Spirit do amazing things. I, I've seen this happen. I can tell you stories about that. But it just seemed not to connect with the world in which I lived. And then I realized the reason for that lack of connection because I hadn't really understood who Jesus was. And that came out last night, I hope. We're dealing with history. We're dealing with stuff that happened. And once you start talking about history, you've got to talk about context. So I'm an Australian and I live in Canada. And one of the things that's interesting about Canadians is they keep telling themselves, we are not like the people in the South, meaning you guys. Right? <laughs> now, I mean, you probably don't even know where Canada is. Right? It's that kind of place up the top and... And fair enough, most Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Right? I can go to the U.S. for breakfast, which completely blows the mind of my Australian friends. You what? You're in Canada, you went to the U.S. for breakfast? Yeah, 20-minute drive. Right? Most Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. All that big stuff up the top, empty. Right? So you can understand why being so close to your country, they're a little nervous about this, right? Because you're a pretty big elephant and the bath's not that big, right? <laughs> you know, you, you just wave an ear and those guys are drowning, okay? Now, that's not a criticism, but that's just kind of what Canadians, it makes Canadians tick, actually, uh, which is a bit sad because Canada's got a lot of good things. And I just encourage you, um, you can affirm what's good without putting other people down. Right? And I, I sometimes wish Canadians would get that. I, I understand why they do what they do. I think that they'd be far healthier if they stopped doing it and celebrated the goodness that makes them who they are without having to say, 
Uh, anyway, there you go. You see, it's all about context. Jesus has a context too. He didn't just drop out of the sky. Now, what's intriguing about this in my field is that uh, it's only in the last 50 or 60 years, actually, in 2,000 years of church history, in the last 50 or 60 years, stop and think about that. 2,000 years, last half century, the Christians have actually taken seriously that Jesus was Jewish. Taken that seriously. That, to me, is gobsmacking. Just what must have been going on in people's heads to deny the very context that made sense of Jesus? What did we think we were doing when we were doing theology if we could talk about God and it didn't matter that Jesus was Jewish? And maybe that's why we call the Old Testament the Old Testament. I have a question. Where does Jesus ever refer to the Old Testament as the Old Testament? Where does Paul ever do that? Well, if Jesus doesn't and Paul doesn't, then we should probably stop doing it. Why do we do that? Because we think actually Jesus was a Greek in disguise. Because we really think that Hellenic wisdom, our friend Pluto, Plato, Socrates, all those guys, that that's really where it's at. And that's the fundamental point about this story. Point two on your notes. The God we've come to is radically different from what anyone else expected. Now, what's intriguing about this is that uh, in the 19th century, 1800s, when the Germans, the kind of the intellectual powerhouse of Europe, are trying to think through what it means to be German, and of course, the medieval world in Christendom has long collapsed. In fact, World War I ends up being pretty much the final point at which the West abandons its Christian heritage. Do you ever think about that way? Why World War I? Because from very early on, the aristocracy and the church worked hand in hand and World War I is when Europe's aristocracy finally gets demolished in terms of its credibility. That's what happens. And when the aristocracy goes, the church that walked hand in hand with it goes as well. You probably haven't really heard that before. I'm convinced of it. World War I is when it really hits the the rubber hits the road. Because the church was deeply embroiled in that debacle. It's finally when people said enough and it's done. It's linked with the aristocracy. But the God we've come to doesn't fit that model. That's not the God you meet in Israel's scriptures. You meet a God who comes to Egypt and brings out the little people. This is not a God who's going to send off working class guys to the mince meat, you know, make a grinder, whatever, that World War I was. Our God wouldn't do that. Our God is not like these guys. Now, in that time, when they're thinking through, you know, just before this all comes about, the Germans are trying to think about who we are, you no longer have Christendom, that's collapsing, have to find national identity. The Germans love reason, and they're thinking, this is what the Greeks do, So you'll see there's a lot of Greek-type architecture that begins to emerge, even in your own history. Look at the buildings in Washington. How many of those echo great Greek architecture? That's what they're going back to, right? And I think there's a wonderful new thing that's going on, except they didn't really pay attention because the Greeks themselves said they got their wisdom from Egypt. 
in a very famous debate in Germany amongst two academics when all this is happening and this one academic is a great champion of Greek thinking and this other academic very well trained said actually you need to realize it finds its roots in Egypt well you don't win debates because you're right fashion is what wins debates often intellectual fashion now you should know that at university right Universities are meant to be open to debate. I've been around. Actually, there are some things that are not open to debate. Universities, pluralist, as long as you're the right kind of pluralist. Right? They can be pretty totalitarian, intolerant places, actually. The intellectual elite can be just as bad as any other elite. And in this big debate, right, go back and have a look at it. It's clear that the guy who was arguing for the Egyptian roots of Greeks, uh, Greek thought was bang on the money, and it's just re-emerging in the last few decades. But he stood no chance because no German wanted to be told that actually his intellectual roots went back to Egypt. Didn't want that. Now, isn't that interesting? Where does the Exodus take place? Hmm? And the language of the New Testament is Greek. Egypt, Greece. Isn't that interesting? And the God who made the world, the God with whom we come to have our dealings, with whom we've engaged, he's unlike the gods of Egypt and he's certainly unlike the gods of the Greek world. So what's really happening, what you see in the New Testament, when these guys go off in the book of Acts, you notice how often they get into trouble? Everywhere they go, things are coming unstuck. In fact, the good people of Thessalonica are absolutely frustrated. The people who've turned the world upside down have come hither, right? Now, you see, they don't quite understand what's happening, but I'm going to argue that what the gospel is doing is actually overthrowing the ancient world. It was not a matter of going to a temple where it had Zeus on the lintel, taking off Zeus and putting Jesus. Because all this stuff is deeply interconnected. The gods, the way they see the world, the shape of their societies, how they treat women, how they treat slaves, they're all tied up together. And the reason these Christian missionaries keep getting into trouble is because people don't quite understand, but they intuit that they're about to tear that world entirely apart and put in place something different so that we are scandalised when a bomb goes astray in Afghanistan. That's what we've come to deal with, a world made new. We all know that if anyone is in Christ, they're what? They have become a new creature. Can I tell you, that's not the only thing that's made new. When you encounter Jesus and you read the Gospels, your way of seeing the world changes too. Your way of understanding the world changes too. It's not just us, but the world becomes a new creation and you're living in it. This technological society that we have, the fact that there's women in this room. How many women would be in universities in the first century? Are you kidding? Right. You don't have loom weights. How can you possibly be? Oh, Katie understands the story. But, uh, maybe I'll tell you about that later on. But Aristotle wrestled with the question of why do men have bits that hang down? And the answer was loom weights, and that's why men were trim, taut, and terrific, and women were all over the ship because they didn't have loom weights to keep them steady. That's Aristotle. Right? 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 And people thought that was pretty cool. 
or at least the men did, and the men controlled everything, right? And then you hear Paul, who some of you think is an enemy of women. He's not. He's your great champion. The first voice in the ancient world that says, actually, in Christ, there is no male, female, slave, nor free, Jew, nor Gentile. Do you have any idea how radical those words are? And aren't they meant to be the values of our modern world? You didn't get that from Athens. You got that from Paul, who was talking about what Jesus did. So, a different God. Okay, now, in your handout, we're ready to go to beginnings. Da, 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 da. Uh, maybe we're not. Has it gone to sleep? Let me try again. Maybe I've gone to sleep. Up oh, there we go. We're good. There is. That's John the Baptist having a locust. Um, <laughs> yum, yum. So you'll notice in your handouts, some places I give you scriptures, other, other places I don't. I haven't given you ones for the Gospels because I'd actually like you to read your Gospels at some point and see if what I'm talking about is true, right? which is probably a good thing to do. You never know, right? These Australians, rude, crude and a bit tricky. Huh? Yeah. So be like the noble people of Berea who go back and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. So first of all, John the Baptist. Last night we talked about ancient biographies, remember? Somewhere vaguely, yes you do. And we talked about how they were different from modern ones. But one of the things they do is they'd often talk about where someone was born, a bit about their early history. Most of the focus on adult life, but a bit about that. What's interesting, you might recall me saying this, is only Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. That's really different. But all four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke and John all agree that you can't understand Jesus apart from this guy. Locust, desert and all. Now that's why point A is the offence of John the Baptist. Because when you and I do philosophy and I've done it, we don't start with John the Baptist. We start with our great thoughts about things. We start with the assumption that human reason is brilliant and can search out all things. Really? Really? Prove to me this lectern exists on the basis of pure reason. I'll save you the trouble, you can't. Prove to me that mathematics is internally consistent on the basis of pure reason. Now I'm going to say, right? You can't. Kurt Goodell proved that it's impossible using mathematics to prove it's internally consistent. Prove to me, using reason alone, that it's wrong to torture a child for entertainment. You can't. That's what postmodernity is telling us. In fact, prove to me, using reason alone, that you actually have some kind of independent agency and are not just part of a clockwork machine. Right? And let me tell you, you can't. Those four things are essential to human civilization, and we can't prove a single one of them using reason alone. You got that? People talk about the Enlightenment, all about people, you know, just trusting human reason. The other part of the Enlightenment is the realization that reason is a very thin reed. We can design iPhones and aircraft, but we have to make an awful lot of assumptions to get started. You want to go down the road of reason? You're crazy. You are going to end up with postmodernity. You're going to end up where actually you can't really prove anything that matters in life. 
right? And welcome to North American culture. We put our trust in pure reason, and boy, are we in a mess. Have you ever thought that maybe some of the anger that other nations feel against Western culture is not because they're afraid of our freedom, but they see what it's doing to us? Ever thought of that? And we talk about how they dehumanize women by making them wear veils, and we take them off completely and then make videos of women and dogs, and we sell that to people in this entertainment. Oh, really? Who's dehumanizing women? So when the Bible starts the story with, with John the Baptist, the story of Jesus and John the Baptist, it's a profound rebuke to human reliance on wisdom, on our reason alone. And who is this guy, John the Baptist? He's a weirdo. Seriously. Living out in the desert, wearing some kind of camel skin hair shirt, eating locusts. I mean, what is this guy doing? You understand what an offence this is to our universities. And I'm not knocking education, okay? I'm not doing that. Sorry, I have a couple of master's degrees, PhD from Cambridge. I'm not against education. But I am against a foolish and unthinking trust in human reason. John the Baptist stands against that. And what he particularly does, by the way, is he locates the meaning of life in the story of Israel. There's our Egypt, Israel, Israel, Greece, tension. My goodness. It's important to get this. You sometimes hear people talking about the story of the Garden of Eden and what do they say? They say, well, you know, God said don't touch the tree, of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want us to know. Ever heard that? Right? Garden of Eden story is a God who doesn't want humans to learn. That's not the point of the story. Go read the story of Solomon. God gives him wisdom about good and evil. God wants to give us wisdom. He knows that we're creatures and we can't find it on our own. Right? And you can just be a philosopher and see that without any belief in Christianity whatsoever, if you're honest. Anyone ever seen, I know it's an old film now, you might have read the book Name of the Rose. Anyone seen that? Or read the book? No, Okay. Well, uh, it's an amazing story. It's a parable of, of Western history and it concludes with the burning down of a monastery which represents Christian knowledge and the last scenes in the book are just someone standing there with a few fragments in their hand not knowing what to do with it. That's Western culture. Don't know where we are. And actually, that's where Greek culture was in the 2nd and 3rd century too. John the Baptist, the Gospels say, no, you have to start somewhere else. And it starts in the desert with a weird bloke who doesn't tick any of the boxes that we think have to do with greatness or intelligence or getting ahead. There's a reason Jesus dies on the cross. It's yes for our sins, but it's also the fact that the cross flies in the face of all the things the Roman Empire and the Greek philosophers valued. Paul talks about that in the letter to the Corinthians. Greeks seek wisdom, the Jews are into power, but we get Christ and him crucified. And it just turns out that the foolishness of God happens to be greater than the wisdom of the Greeks. Look at our world now. And the weakness of God in the cross is the thing that's given rise to this incredible power of technology that we have. Right? God knows what he's doing. 
We need to imitate his character. So that's the offense of John, locating Jesus in the particular story of Israel. Yep, God wants us to know about good and evil, but he knows we can't find it on our own. And people are realizing that. What did John think he was doing? Well, let's think about it for a bit. He's out in the desert and he's putting people through water. Now, where have you seen that before in Israel's story? Desert and going through some water. Anybody? Exactly, right? It's the Exodus story. And what's the Exodus story all about? How do you make sense of that? Well, it is coming out of Egypt. And at the centre of that is actually the presence of God. You were praying, singing this morning, Holy Spirit, be present here. That's what the Exodus is about, folks. Israel comes out, they get involved with a golden calf, the thing all goes, you know, uh, I was going to use an expression, I shouldn't use it, it becomes a mess, right? And then God says to Israel, okay, look, I'll give you the lamb, but I won't come with you. And Moses says, no deal. We don't want the lamb without your presence. Because without the presence, we've got nothing. And some of you know that. Some of you come from very wealthy homes. You have everything you want, and they're hell on earth. Why? Because there's no character of God present. There's no life-giving presence there. No, without your presence, we have nothing. And you need to know that, folks. Focus without the presence of God through his Holy Spirit is not worth a cracker and it won't survive. Okay? So you just be completely unashamed about pouring out your heart to God and telling him from the very core of your being, Holy Spirit, we need you. It's not because you worship the Holy Spirit, it's because the Spirit is the one who causes and enables the Father and the Son to make their home in us. Do you have any idea what it's like to live in the constant presence of God? We're going to talk about that later on. It's the most amazing, amazing thing. But we're not at that part of the story just yet. So I think what John's doing is reenacting this great experience of the Exodus because he's preparing for a new one. Israel was waiting for that. They're waiting for a new Exodus. Why do they keep talking about a new Exodus? Because that's when God revealed himself. That's when they actually got to know Yahweh. Not as a vague God, but they got to see his character. We'll talk about that in the next talk as well. He's talking about also the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not actually mentioned much. When he talks about, you know, who's he preparing for? This one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's linking water, desert, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one place in the Scriptures where you find that. It's in your notes, Isaiah 63, 64, where Isaiah is looking back. The place is a mess. They've come back from exile. It's still a mess. It's not working out. And you get the last great blues tune in the prophet. And he looks back and remembers what things were like. And then he says, you know, you brought us through the desert. You took us through the water. You sent your spirit among us. But we grieved your spirit and you became our enemy. And now we're in this mess. And then what does he cry out? Oh, that you would tear the heavens apart and come down among us and do awesome things that we did not expect. Now, if you know your Gospels, there's a certain person who came out to see John who goes through the water and what happens? The heavens are torn open and when this certain very important person starts doing his stuff, what is the response of everybody? They are amazed. He's doing things 
they did not expect. Right? That's what you're getting in Jesus. He's the one who fulfills all of this. John talks about one comes after me who is stronger than I am. Academics look at that and say, oh, really, John? Tell us something we didn't know. <laughs> Who's John referring to? Some people think the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is never really called the stronger one. That's not really a title for the Messiah. It is, however, a title that's used of God. I've given you a whole range of references in Israel's scriptures to help you with that. Oh, look at that. The book of Isaiah. Same one John's really concerned with. God is known as the strong one. He can do whatever he pleases. What's a little interesting about this, though, is, well, well, you know, well, John, of course God's stronger than you. Duh, you know. Um, <laughs> but the language strength here means something else. In the book of, uh, in letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church thinks we can eat in idols' temples and it doesn't matter. And Paul says, are you kidding? You think you can go have fellowship with them and fellowship with God? You can't go back and read the scriptures and see what God, what God does the people who muck about with idolatry and want to worship him. You can't do that. And it's not because God's just a you know, party pooper, it's because idolatry is going to lead you to destroy people. That's what it will do to you. People who worship money, guess what they'll do to people around them? You worship your house, your car, your good looks, you'll be a menace to anyone around you, your intellect. Because you'll fail to see that everyone else is also made in God's image because you don't understand who God is. You think it's intellect. You think it's grades. You think it's money. And you'll bring death to anyone who comes within breathing distance. That's why idolatry is not on. The consequences are horrific. Roman world, idolatrous world. Look at how it treated people as a result of that. And Paul says to these people, do you think that you are stronger than God? The stronger language has a real edge to it. It's judicial language. Jeremiah talks about God saying to the prophet, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, I will not change my mind. These people will go into exile. That's because God is stronger than human beings. And that's partly what John is announcing, that God is coming. And he's actually coming to do some stuff with Israel because Israel's in strife. So there's an edge to the Jesus thing. It's not just Mr. Rogers. There's mercy, there's compassion, but this is serious stuff because idolatry leads to the destruction of other people and God doesn't take very kindly to that. He's a God who brings his people out of Egypt where Pharaoh thinks he can treat people like dirt. That's why church ought to be the safest place on the planet. Because what we do is people-keeping. Only thing made in God's image, we take care of people. That's what brings honour to him. John talks about the baptism of the Spirit. Israel's looking for that. Do you understand? It's not Pentecostals who invented, oh, please, Holy Spirit, come. Israel's asking for that. That's what the prophets are looking for. They know they need the Spirit of God. That's what will change them, the indwelling Spirit. So what does John say when one is coming who will baptise you in the Holy Spirit? First of all, what does the word baptism mean? Well, it's not some kind of ad for dove soap where Jesus comes into the river, comes up in all slow-mo, he flings his hair, you know, up it goes, and there's this wonderful right, dove there, you know, 
And underneath comes a little advert, buy Dove Soap. <laughs> Be as sexy as Jesus to everyone. <laughs> That's not what's going on. The word baptism is used to describe huge storms that overwhelm ships. And that's what this is. This is a tsunami of the presence of God. That's why when Jesus walks into a synagogue and all these many years there's been some guy, I don't know, Jacob Ben Amos or something, got this unclean spirit in him. He's sitting in synagogue all these many years. They preach Torah, Torah, Torah and nothing happened. And that can happen in your churches too. Preach Torah, 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 yada, 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 and nothing happens. And then Jesus turns up, begins to speak, and all of a sudden, here's this unclean spirit just about to kind of you know, nod off to sleep again for the billionth time in synagogue, and suddenly he hears this voice. Hang on to your seat. Yeah, he says. Yep, sorry about that. Woke you up, didn't it? <laughs> okay, who spilt their coffee? <laughs> What are you doing here, he says. He doesn't care about what people think. He's heard this voice before. But not on earth, in heaven, when it cast him and his master out of those regions. And now hears this voice here upon the earth in a Galilean synagogue. Have you come to destroy us? That's what the presence of God does. Right? Not just empty words. Paul says this when he writes to the Thessalonians, probably the first church on European soil. You know when we came, we did not come in word only, but in spirit and in power and with much conviction. That's presence. That's what makes the difference. When God turns up, it's not just empty words. It's transformative. And I think that's what John's talking about. When Jesus comes, hang on to your hats. Things are going to start going astray everywhere. And you watch Jesus as he walks through the land, there's unclean spirits popping out everywhere, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed that. Anyone ever had an experience of seeing someone set free from an unclean spirit? Yeah, right? The power of the name of Jesus is amazing, folks, and they know it. They react to the name of Jesus like a cat to scalding hot water. And I remember the church used to go to back in Australia. We once, one Sunday morning, had two witches turn up and sit in the back row, right? I'll never forget it, young teenager. And the pastor came down after preaching. He got within about 15 feet of these two women. They both fell on the floor, started moving like serpents and hissing. Right? Are involved in that stuff? No, they're not a road show. They're not doing that. That's just what happens when the power of Jesus turns up. Right? This is real stuff you're involved in. You understand that? If you're finding your Christian life's a bit flat, it might just be because what you think you're living is not actually the Christian life. It's all word and that's great, but where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? That's the thing that brings transformation. Jesus doesn't go around looking for these things, you understand. He doesn't turn it into the Jesus kind of international world mission, casting out demons association. He doesn't do that. Right? He just turns up and in him is the powerful presence of God and when God turns up, stuff happens. Jesus declares the gospel in the power of the Holy Now, do you want to see stuff like that happen? I do. I want to see people changed and set free. So that's what John's announcing, right? And then Jesus' baptism and his testing and temptation. Is that right? When are we meant to finish? 
You don't know. I don't know either. I need your help. <laughs> what, when's the time show we meant to be done? I just, I just forgot to look at the clock. and I. 11.30, is that it? Bless you. We're going to make it. Great. Okay, excellent. That's such good news. Thank you. So, look at this. Jesus turns up, passes through the water out in the desert, and this time, as the heavens open, sounds like Isaiah, there's a voice that says, you are my beloved son. Where have you seen that before? Who's the first person called son of God in the Bible? And hint, don't say Jesus. In the Bible. It's close, but uh, first person actually called son. You're in the right territory. That's good. Keep going. Near Moses. Moses is involved in it. We're getting really warm. This is great, especially on a cold day like this. Sorry? Aiden? David. Um, that's good, but he's, he's the second kind of... He's, he's a bit later on. Okay, okay, okay. Nice try. No cigar to any of you. That's good because your lungs will stay in good condition. First person called son of God in the Bible is when Moses turns up and says to Pharaoh, Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. Mm. Well, that was worth the price of admission, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? It doesn't mean Israel is divine. It means that Israel is meant to look like God and that means in his character. You get that? That's what Israel's scriptures are about. They're about telling us what God looks like. And we're meant to look like him because we're made in his image. Right? Now, that's what we're going to see in Jesus. The next session is, so who is this God and what does he look like? There are next two talks after this. But right now, we're trying to establish something else. Don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Right? So what's going on here, at least, is Jesus is taking on the role of Israel. You will see in Jesus for the first time what it really means for someone to look like their dad. Because that's what Israel was called to be, Deuteronomy chapter 4. You're to be my example people. Do what I say and the nations will say to you, oh, what a wise people. When was the last time your local council came to you and said, we've been watching you and we're really impressed? Right? I have some friends in the UK. They're in a city where there's quite a bit of racial tension, having terrible trouble with some of the inner city schools. They're approached by their local council. This is the UK, right? Not a real friend of Christianity at the moment. And they came to some people I know there who run a Christian school and they said, we've been watching you. That's what we're here for, by the way, to be watched. Don't say to people, don't look at me, just look at Jesus. The reason you're here is because we are the embodiment of who Jesus is. Now, does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. That's why we're humble. That's why we admit our mistakes. But people are meant to look at us and see what this is like. Right? That's what Israel is called to be. So they approach these people and they say, look, we'd like you to take over some of our schools. They said, um, yeah, but you, you, you know we're a Christian school. Yes, we know that. No, 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 we mean a Christian school, not, not a church school, a Christian school. We really do believe in Jesus. Yes, we know that. No, 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 no. We actually have chapels where we ask God to turn up, right? We know that. <laughs> we know that. But you have Muslims at your school and you treat them well and there's harmony in your school. 
We don't find, find people fighting. We want you to take over these schools. That's the gospel. Right? That's why the world has changed. That's why that Roman soldier in the end did not conquer. And the donkey stuck on a tree did. Foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And the witness of God greater than our power. People liked to be loved. That's what you're seeing in Jesus for the first time. You're actually seeing what this looks like. So look at Jesus. Watch him in action. Now, some of you, you remember, the, was it the WW Jesus? Was it WWJD band, something or other, right? Um, I, I had some colleagues who were kind of a little, well, you know, toffee-nosed about that. Just like, oh, you know, this is... Um, but actually, I think it's a pretty good idea. It's a pretty good question to ask yourself every time. What would Jesus do? I mean, who else are you going to ask, right? You're not going to ask, what would Rick Watts do? That'd be a serious mistake. <laughs> what would Karl Marx do? What would good old Adolf do? Right? I mean, who are you going to model your life on, actually? So, well done you for asking the right questions. And well done you for kind of getting up the nose of some of us academics who just got so caught up in our ivory towers that we've forgotten what it's all about. Well done. Now, what's this got to do with the dove now? Because the dove comes on Jesus... Um, Spirit of God like a dove. What does that mean? Well, Hosea 7.11 says, Israel is a silly dove. And people say, well, the dove can't represent Israel because doves are silly. No, they're not. Jeremiah chapter 8 talks about the dove. He cites four birds, one of which is the dove, who are smart enough to know where they're meant to go and when. And Jeremiah says, the problem with Israel, it's dumber than these birds. You see, the thing about a dove is a dove doesn't have a powerful beak. Right? Doesn't quite work to have the golden dove on the top of your flag, or whatever it is you do here, right? And look at the dove's talons. Pathetic, right? What does the dove have? Speed and a sense of direction. And that's all that Israel has. Can't protect itself but it knows to whom it should go and go quickly. That's the symbol of the dove. And Israel's a stupid dove because it's going everywhere else except to Yahweh. Right? And I think what's going on is this. What's being told to us in this imagery is that it's the Holy Spirit indwelling Jesus that's going to enable him to be the true Israel dove. And you think about it. When does Jesus ever use his power for himself? Never. In fact, he'll go to the cross, donkey-headed and all, trusting that his father will redeem him and his dad comes through. That's us, folks. We do not rely on our own understanding, yet we get educated, we do all that kind of stuff, but we realise that's not the whole game. None of that is going to work unless it's surrounded with the deep grace and mercy of a God who wants to be with us, who wants to teach us his ways. Well, you know, I, this is not really the time to talk about it. Um, but I've, I don't know, I was thinking about what it means to be made in God's image, but I think God has a huge refrigerator in heaven and it's covered with all your pictures that you brought home from school and God looks at that stuff and says, wow, look at what my kids do. 
right? I mean, what kind of father do you think God is? Talk about that in the next session. I mean, which God have you come to? What if this is a God who says to you, I've given you this amazing world, it hangs together by this freedom, show me what you can do. Surprise me. Does it worry you that God can be surprised? (gasps) How can he be in control? He's not surprised. He's the God of the universe. He's not fussed, okay? (laughs) He's just not fussed. God doesn't have issues, right? That's why he can give you the freedom he does, right? I imagine one day he was just amazed when some guy said, I'm going to get this ball and throw it through an old fruit bucket on the wall and he invented basketball and God says to Jesus, well, will you look at that? What did they come up with? Isn't that amazing? Right? <laughs> no, I, I actually do believe that. That God has made us creative beings and he wants to see what we can do. But he knows we have to do that in a way that reflects his character, otherwise we'll be a menace to everyone. That's why Jesus comes, to show us what this character of God looks like. So the spirit like a dove, it's the spirit that forms this true dove-like nature in Jesus where he doesn't really have to be on his own case. Jesus too is over himself and he happens to be the son of God because it's not about him. You want to be involved in life-giving evangelism? It ain't about us, folks. It's a different thing. So then you come to the voice from heaven and the voice from heaven couple of things to say here. don't want to spend too much time. Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. One to do with the Davidic king that everyone's waiting for. And what do you know about David? For Saul, the only good Philistine is a dead one. David has him in his bodyguard. Read the end of Samuel and look at the roll call of nations that join themselves to David, right? It's an amazing vision, not nepotism, right? In fact, it embodies values of the modern world where you get promotion in David's world because of your gift, not because of your skin colour. That's a brilliant vision. He's got people from all over the ancient world in his kingdom because he's understood some stuff about what God is like and this is for everyone. That's the Davidic king. Israel hasn't had one of those in a very long time. But then Isaiah 42 is about a servant and this servant's different because he's not going to behave like a warrior. He won't shout the war cry in the street. He won't break the reed that's bruised and almost falling apart. He's not going to quench that wick where there's just a little bit of smoke. That's not what God is like. He cares for that stuff. Now, if you ask Americans what they think God is like, is that what they say? Whose fault is that? Who's meant to reflect the character of God to the world? And I'm not here, folks, to point fingers at anyone. Not about that. This is about life, right? It's not about accusing anyone. That doesn't help. Not into that. We want the gospel to change our streets, don't we? Yes, we do. So why isn't it? Well, maybe it's not the gospel that's lost its power. Maybe we've lost the gospel and we need to learn some things about who God is. Not as condemnation, but as life. So here's Jesus, this Davidic king, but he's going to do it in a different kind of way. He'll rule the nations, but with this merciful, gracious character. And what happens? 400 AD, the Roman Empire finally kneeled before Jesus and no Christian ever fired a shot. And the only blood that was shed was their own. 
and they conquered the greatest empire the world had seen to that point. If you're going to change the world, you can't use its grammar. You've got to find a different way to speak about it, and that's what you're seeing in this God. So Jesus now faces temptation, right? Taken off of the desert. And what's going on here? He's just been declared son of God. I don't think that means deity, not at this point. But what it's about is, will you betray your sonship? You're called to look like God. Will you in fact do that? And the first temptation is this, turn these stones into bread. What's at issue? Will you use your power for your own benefit? That's why I have some severe doubts about some of the health and wealth gospel stuff that goes on. Because it's all about me. Now, I know God cares for me, and Jesus knows that too. God will take care of that stuff. He knows we need bread. Right? Fully committed to a creation. So Jesus is no Gnostic, he's no Platonist. Right? Bodies matter, God loves them, and apparently he loves food, he created the garden, that's all good stuff, it's not being done away with. But in that setting, who's going to help you live properly? You can't do it autonomously. You have to let God show you, and that's what Jesus understands. He will not use his power for himself. That's one of the hallmarks of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We do not play power games. That's not what Christians do. That's not our thing. Let Rome do that. That's not what we do. I wonder if Satan says, well, yes, of course. Yes, of course. I mean, you've, you've got this, Jesus. That's great. Kingdom of God's not about, you know, the power for yourself. But, you know, you are going to need power for this project. The project's not about you, but for the project you're going to need power. And I can give you all the armies on the face of the earth. We can do this, right? Let me give you an AK-47, right? And we know it's not about you, but it's the kingdom. So, of course, you can go out and kill other people in the name of Allah or Yahweh or whatever. That's the temptation. And Jesus says, I will not betray God's character by coercing people to follow him. Jesus does not coerce. We'll talk about Jesus and Optimus Prime in the next session. (laughs) What is Jesus like? That's not what he does. So the next scene is Jesus is now in Jerusalem, kind of a vision, who knows what's really going on. And Satan says, look, It's a big project we're involved in. Well done you for not choosing power. Well done you for not making this about yourself. But, mate, you've got to make a splash. You've got to impress people. Right now in the temple, they're offering an evening sacrifice. They're asking for God to redeem them from bondage. You know what? At the height of that ceremony, I've got the spotlights all set up. I've got the sequin jumpsuit with the blue cape and the red J for Jesus on the front. I've got you two lined up to play. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And we're right at the key point. You're going to leap yourself off, just throw yourself off the top of the temple, right? And, and from a 10,000 gathered you know, voices, <gasps> this great gasp, right? And then a rumor of feathers. <laughs> and the angels pick you up. And I've got the Vote One Jesus badges. $20 donation will get you one CD. 50 get you five. Right? And we're off in the Jesus Christ Project. Sound familiar? And Jesus refuses to do it because he will not manipulate the deepest longings that people have to know God, and we should not either. Got that? We don't use this power for ourselves because it's not about us. Get over yourself and let God do the thing among you, right? 
We will not coerce people. We don't play that game. Rome does that. We don't. If anyone dies, it'll be us. Listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians, absolutely amazing, amazing letter. Worth spending time in. True model of Christian leadership that's imitating Jesus. And the third thing is we don't manipulate. We respect people. And if someone wants to walk away from what we're offering, we let them do it because that's what Jesus does. And it's because of this that he comes out of the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you want to be involved in spiritual warfare? Those three things are the heart of spiritual warfare. Not about ourselves. No coercion, no manipulation. Right? Because that's reflecting the character of God. That's what we do. And so Jesus comes out and the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in him. And then you find these mighty words. Now, last night we talked about some of the words of Jesus are really cool and others are quite problematic. This is one of them. Right, so he's in this house, the roof's torn open by some guys, they lay, lay down their friend on this, I don't know what he's thinking about this, as he makes a real entry, middle of the crowd of the house, right? And, uh, and Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven, and all the theologians sitting around say, what, you can't say that? Only God can forgive sins. Right? Of course, they don't say that publicly, just in their hearts, and Jesus says, yeah, I know what you're thinking. What? Who else reads hearts and minds if not God? Do you think Satan can read your mind? Who told you that? You think he can? I don't think so. Only God knows what you're thinking. And Jesus says, just so you realize that this son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, stand up and walk. I mean, how do you debate that? Well, let me open my commentary here. Da, 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 da. The guy's walking. Well, you know, there is this tradition. The guy's walking. <laughs> okay, right? I mean, you, you get your life. The quality of your Christian life is the most powerful apologetic you have because it's right there in front of everybody's eyes. And people can prattle on all they like, but you're real and your love is real. And that speaks volumes. You got that? You got that? You might think, oh, we can't really you know, mix it with... It's, no, no, no. The quality of your life, folks. You bring life to people. That's what Jesus is doing. Just great stuff. Then a bit later on, he says, you know, uh, no, here's Jesus with his mates. They're out walking through a field. They're a bit peckish, right? And uh, it's Sabbath, and it's a cornfield, and so someone get a bit of corn, and they rub it, and they nibble it, and then, you know, up from behind the sheaves leap the Sabbath police. If you've heard the New Testament Foundations tapes, you're familiar with this, I do apologise, but it's a wonderful story, I think. Right? What kind of people spend their one day off a week lurking in wheat fields looking for Sabbath breakers? <laughs> Have you nothing better to do <laughs> than to see how many tats somebody has on their arm? How many ear studs? Is that the basis on which we judge people? I hope not. That's not how God does it. God looks on the heart. And sometimes we let that other stuff get in the road and we just don't see what's going on in people's lives. That's not us, folks. Everyone's made in God's image. Everyone's looking. And that's what we honour. Not about ourselves. We don't coerce. We don't manipulate. We offer life. Right? Without judgment. 
course, part of that life's going to mean some things, right, Alex? We'll talk about that later on. Now, the Son of Man, we need to say a few words about that just briefly. So you're in the supermarket. Oh, hang on, I haven't finished the story yet. Sorry, back to the Sabbath, right? Oh, get hold of yourself here, Rick. Um, so, Jesus is talking to these guys and uh, they're saying, you know, hang on, what are you doing? Or it's unlawful to do this on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have said, actually, that's not what Moses is talking about. This is not an issue, so go stick that in your pipe and smoke it. He could have said that, right? <laughs> but he doesn't. He says to them, your creation story is all wrong. In your story, the Father, Son and the Spirit are sitting around and they're not doing much because there isn't much. Kind of spiritually twiddling their thumbs and someone says, no, maybe we should create something. Oh, great idea, let's create something. Uh, what do we create? Gee, I don't know. Um, uh, oh, the rules. Let's create the rules. Brilliant idea. So they created 50,000 light years in length, 20,000 wide um, made of platinum, jewel encrusted, all the rest spinning in space. Right? The rules! Right? Yeah, and, and it's really thrilling for about five minutes. Right? It's just like when you bought that really fancy car and you thought it was going to make you a happier person, and then comes that sad moment when you realize it's not going to work because you can't have a relationship with the car. Right? kind of an embarrassed silence in heaven for a few minutes and then uh, maybe the Holy Spirit says, you know what, I, I think there's something missing. It's like, yes, but what are we... Oh, I know, let's create people to keep the rules. And there it is, right? And Jesus says, that's your creation story. You think God made the world and the law to keep people. But the law is not made in God's image. Focus is not made in God's image. Your choir is not made in God. Your worship band. Teaching sessions. The only thing God made in God's image is sitting right next to you. Have a good look. It's the only thing made in God's image. Even the scriptures are not made in God's image. And Jesus says, we're not about Sabbath keeping we're about people keeping because only people are made in God's image. And when Sabbath gets in the road of bringing life to people, too bad for Sabbath because that's what Sabbath was designed to do, not to be a rule but to nourish and sustain and to cause you to flourish. That's what we do, folks. Beautiful, isn't it? So the Son of Man in my remaining four minutes, and we'll pick up some of this tonight, okay? The problem is you get talking about Jesus and it just goes on, at least I go on, okay? shouldn't blame Jesus for that. <laughs> but he's amazing. <laughs> I love him. I think he's just great, right? <laughs> so you're in the supermarket and, uh, you know, you're meeting somebody there and you say, hi, my name's Rick and what's your name? Oh, I'm the son of man. <laughs> Imagine a, a Seinfeld episode on that, right? Or <laughs> fourth rock from the sun or something. What would that look like, you know? And then you suddenly remember you have an appointment somewhere. You're not sure whether you know you have an appointment and you have to go. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Son of man. Okay. <laughs> what in the world is Jesus talking about? Now, what's really strange about this is no one in the stories reacts like that. No one goes, what are you talking about? No one says that. And no one says, oh, so you're that son of man. So what's going on here? Now, 
This has been a, a problem for academics, hence the little quote at the end of that line, son of man, son of man, that way lies madness, is what an Oxford professor once said about this issue, right? People trying to work out what it means. But now I think people have a bit of an idea. Jesus is picking a label that people think they understand and he can fill this with his own content. If he said, I'm the Messiah, everyone thinks they know what Messiah means and the project's over before he gets started because I've got the wrong idea. So Jesus brilliantly picks a label that doesn't ruffle any feathers and he's able to fill it with his own content. And that's why you only find Jesus using this after the resurrection. No more son of man language. Lord Jesus Christ is what you get. Because right? now we know who he is. And how do I know that? Because who's the only one who can forgive sins? It's Yahweh. And now he's on earth in Jesus. That's why he can call himself Lord of the Sabbath. Whose Sabbath is this? Go back and read Exodus. It's the Lord's Sabbath. And Jesus says, yeah, it's mine. Ah, ah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> people are saying you know why, why aren't your disciples fasting he says why should you fast you go to a wedding you eat right you don't fast at a wedding that's an insult you go to a wedding and you eat yourself silly well not quite but you eat right you celebrate and my disciples don't fast because the bridegroom has come now what the heck is he talking about because the only one who's the bridegroom of Israel in Israel's scriptures is not the Messiah, it's Yahweh himself. Right? Jesus is not claiming to be any old God. He's claiming actually to be Israel's unique God among us. And we're starting to realize we're not just seeing in Jesus what Israel should look like, we're actually beginning to see in front of our little peepers to touch and to handle, we're getting to see what God himself is like. That's what makes Christmas such an amazing event. We no longer need to guess. Sermon on the Mount. Guy goes up the mountain and starts teaching. You're a Jew. Where have you seen teaching on a mountain before? Mount Sinai, right? Okay. And what happens here? Jesus is quoting the scripture. You've heard it said. And he quotes the scripture. And then he says... But I say unto you, like, what? Who the heck are you? You imagine Moses coming off the mountain. Well, God gave you this and the Ten Commandments. But I, Moses, say unto you, like, what? Really? Get out of here. Right? Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking with an authority that actually says, you know what? I'm God among you. God said this, God said this, and now I'm telling you. Right? Incredible stuff. Food laws. Read the Torah. Tons of stuff about food laws and God says, don't touch this stuff, it's unclean for you. And Jesus says, yeah, not so much anymore. Right? Do you understand who this Jesus is? You think he's Mr. Rogers? Think again! This is the sovereign Lord of all creation who walked among us. Right? You start to see that and you see why these guys turn the world upside down. They've seen and touched and handled the one true living God. I am getting excited about this. I'm sorry. Right? He mucks about with the Passover meal. We talked about that. Who do you think you are? Well, guess. This is actually now about me. And the prophet Jeremiah was talking about looking into the future and telling God would act. And he says to Israel, the time is coming when you will no longer remember me from the events of the Exodus. 
you'll remember me for the new things I'm about to do. That's what we're doing here with Jesus. Can I take five minutes for the mighty deeds and then we're done? You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Well, so mighty words and mighty deeds. Jesus heals everyone who comes to him. Again, that's not what the Messiah does, but Psalm 103 tells you, I am the Lord who forgives your sins and who heals all your diseases. That's what Jesus does. Setting people free wherever he goes. Just amazing to watch him do this. No one in the ancient world does this. No one tells stories like this in the ancient world. This is absolutely shocking and astonishing and people are amazed out of their brains by what they see. We have never seen anything like this, they say. Anyone who comes to him, he heals. And it's not just that. He's with his mates on the Sea of Galilee. It's a big storm. But, you know, some of these guys are sailors and women, you know this. What do guys do when you put them in, you know, their kind of area? They show off, don't they? Isn't that what guys do? Kind of pathetic, really, but we do it all the time, trying to impress you, right? This is this kind of crazy guy thing. You're sitting there, have a conversation. This guy goes past doing somersaults and he comes back walking on his hand. Right? <laughs> and he's trying to say, look at me, look at me, baby. Right? You know, just <laughs> Do you have any idea how insecure we men are? We are deeply insecure. Right? I don't mean to be you know, um, crude here, but you know, our good women friends are reminded of why they're here every month. You keep the race going. Right? And what do we do? 10 minutes involvement and the rest of the nine months we're kind of walking around being useless. <laughs> it's true, right? That's why we do the stuff we do. We are desperately trying to shore up our bruised egos. Desperately, right? So here they are in the boat and I can just see them. You know, Peter's got the sail trimmed perfectly. John's just cutting this beautiful line and they're hoping Jesus notices. And what's he doing? He's asleep. And then up comes the mother of all storms and it's a serious storm and they are scared spitless or something that sounds like that. And, you know, what do they do? They come to him, right? I'm not mocking anybody, but they come to him and go... O oh, sovereign Lord, rule of the earth, we do not presume to come to this short sleeping bench, trusting our own righteousness, but you're always mercy, right? That That's not what they do. What do they say? Help us! Now, is Jesus a morning person? Does he leap up or does he go, coffee? <laughs> now, you, you understand, I'm not trying to make light of this story. I'm trying to bring it into the real world. Because we hear these stories and we kill them. But these are real stories and real experience. You know, and Jesus stands up looks around and he says, shut up, and it does. And the language is that blunt. Right? And when the dust settles, you can have dust on a boat after a storm, there's Jesus at the stern of the boat and right up the front on the gunnels, as far away from him as they can get, almost falling into the ocean are the disciples and they're more scared of him than they are of the storm. Why? They know he's a prophet. They've seen him do stuff. But they're Jews. And they know there's only one person who tells the sea what to do. And who'd be that? Yahweh. Nothing prepared them for a carpenter to be Yahweh. You think they invented this story, do you? Seriously? I have a doctor who might be able to help you, but only might. And then immediately after that, they arrive on this shoreline and this guy comes around, so this is the Optimus Prime bloke, we'll talk about him later on. He's the Optimus Prime of the demonic world, Legion is his name. He comes running up to Jesus, quite hilarious, 
he's trying to somehow manipulate Jesus and you can do that by calling the name of a greater power. So, you know, I know who you are, son of the most high God. Oh, dang. Because all he's done is just admitted who Jesus is and he's the supreme power, so that's kind of it really. Not a really good move. Kind of caught himself there a little bit. And it's just like gone, right? And, and the demons say, can we go into the pigs? Why do they pick pigs? Because pigs in the ancient world are the most common animal for sacrifice to idols. Not sure why that is. Uh, my brother-in-law once worked, uh, was studying farming, and he said pigs have the closest psychology to humans. Well, I don't know about that, but that's interesting. They want to be in pigs, and, you know, what are these people doing with pigs? Well, they're obviously farming pigs so they can sell them to the markets for worship, you know, to pagan idols and stuff. And then suddenly these pigs behave in a very unpig-like manner. You know you're Greek, all of a sudden you're using language from a Roman military, a group of raw Roman military recruits on boot camp. And suddenly you've got militarised porkers. And into the sea they go and you ask yourself, where have you seen someone tell the sea what to do? And immediately after, a military host drowns therein. Have you seen that before? Now, can I say, if you haven't seen that before, that's because you don't know how to read your Bible. You don't know how to do theology. You're doing theology like Greeks, but we're not doing philosophy. We're doing history, and history is always about, where have I seen this before? Here it is. And this is Yahweh among us. A little bit later on, he feeds people in the desert and then walks on the water. Notice that? Feeding in water. Now, look at this. Telling the sea what to do, drowning feeding people, controlling the sea. Where have you seen that before? These are the great iconic moments of the Exodus when Yahweh demonstrated that he was the creator. That's what you're being told here. Right? Then we come to the transfiguration, a little bit more than five minutes. Right? This is an incredible moment. We've got to do this. And we're almost here. Thank you for your patience. Right? This is an incredible moment. I was in Israel leading a tour and the Israeli guy who worked with me was involved in the Six-Day War. He was a tank commander. It was on the western side of the uh, Suez Canal. They were driving on Cairo when the UN said stop. He used to tell me, they're driving through these Egyptian airfields. The Egyptians are trying to stop them by firing anti-aircraft missiles at tanks. That's not a clever idea. You might as well use bug spray. I mean, these things. He said they made a lot of noise. They did no damage whatsoever. He said it was kind of fun after a while. I just, you'd see these anti-aircraft missiles coming right at your tank. They'd just completely shatter. You'd feel a bit of a bump and then you'd be going on, right? And, um, Interesting guy, right? He's been around. He lost a lot of friends in that war. And uh, we were standing on the mount where we think the transfiguration happened. And I was talking about what this meant. He was standing behind me. And only later on did I hear um, what his reaction was. But first of all, someone on a mountain where there's a cloud, where there's glory, and people talk about tents. Where have you seen that before? What's that sound like? Mount Sinai, right? right? But you've got to look at the differences. Because in the original story, the cloud comes, Moses goes up the mountain, and only after he's been in the cloud does he shine. In this story, long before the cloud turns up, Jesus is shining like all get out. What does that tell you? He is that glory. And then Moses and Elijah turn up, and in Israel's narrative, Moses and Elijah talk with God. In fact, Mark uses a Greek word here only once in his gospel, and it only occurs once in the Torah, five books of the law, and what's it used of? It's used of Moses speaking face to face with God. You see what Mark's telling you? The transfiguration is that Jesus is none other than Yahweh among us. Right? Now we can talk about why these disciples need that. That's the next talk. But that's what's going on. And then when the God finally turns up, when the cloud finally turns up, the glory's already been there. Now the cloud turns up 
And when you read the Torah, when God gives the law, it goes on and on and on and on and chapter after chapter after chapter, tons and tons of stuff, most of it about building the tabernacle and the priesthood. God turns up in this new Exodus, five words in Aramaic, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Zip. Got that? Nothing about tabernacles. You don't need them anymore. You've got Jesus. That's why Christians don't build temples. You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because the Jesus who died for you, God now dwells in you. And Jesus has some things to say about how we should live. That's the next session. So our last point, we're finally there. Thank you for your patience. What have we got here? This is not any old God. This is a God unlike any you've met as we're going to see. That's who Jesus is. Yahweh. The God unlike any other among us. And he's about changing you and his world. Is that good news? You've been very patient. God bless you. I need to go. See you later.